everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Each week, we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshad Behar opens with a presentation of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and Yovel, the jubilee year. This is particularly meaningful to us, as this year, we in Israel are in the middle of a Shemitah year. The details of Shemitah are followed by the laws of land redemption and selling, a topic with a theological dimension when selling land in divinely allotted portions of Israel. The Parsha continues on with laws of interest and then comes to a finale with laws that govern slavery, both with an Israelite and Canaanite slave. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rabbi Alan Haber, who is one of the founding directors of the Women's Midrashah MMY, in which he remained for 16 years. That's where we first met, when I was a student in their summer Beit Midrash. Today, he teaches in B'nai Kiva's Women's Midrashah, called MTVA, and works as a licensed tour guide. To learn more about him and his work, check out his website at rabbihaber.net. Rabbi Haber, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So I've invited you here today because of your passion for Shemitah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a resident of the town of Alonshvut, um, and uh, there are two rabbis in my town who are really among the world experts uh, in this mitzvah. Rav Yosef Tzvi Rimon, who's the rabbi of our neighborhood and of, of my Beit Knesset, um, is very well known, I think. Um, and Rav Zev Whiteman, who may be less well known to the uh, general public, is the rav of our town, actually, and he's also um, been involved in he's he's, uh, he's involved in kashrut. He's the head of Mashkiach of Tenuva, the big dairy company here in Israel, and he's been involved in various aspects of Shemitah over the last many decades. Both of them have written books on the topic. Both of them speak about the topic, and uh, sort of it's something that I sort of imbibed um, a number of Shemitah cycles ago, and this is the third uh, Shemitah year that I'm I've sort of created this little. Shemitah Education Project. Uh, I give shiurim about it. I've written a little booklet trying to explain Shemitah in English to people, who, uh, particularly people who are less familiar with some of the details of the laws. And I run Shemitah tours. And the purpose of all of this is to take this really unique mitzvah, which is fascinating. It's introduced by Daber Hashem and Moshe Bahar Sinai. Right? We're told that, that this mitzvah was given at Har Sinai. Rashi already asks, what was an all mitzvot given at Sinai? What specific mayan shmitail etzel har Sinai? And Rashi gives a sort of technical answer, but I think there's something uh, deep in that, in that sense that this mitzvah contains within it so many fundamental Torah principles, and really kind of makes the connections between them very, very strong and very clear. And that's sort of a message that I want to give out to people. Also, because nowadays, for the first time, really in thousands of years. This mitzvah is something that we actually have the opportunity to grapple with how to how to actually try to, to try to keep it, try to observe it, even in a modern, not just post-agricultural, but already post-industrial economy, which is such a different world than than the world in which the mitzvah was given. And it's a mitzvah that contains tremendous power, a lot of really, really inspiring ideas, uh, and also great challenge that, frankly, the Jewish people never fully lived up to, even in ancient times. So 
if we have the opportunity to grapple with it again today, that's something that I want to try to bring to people. So, you that's know, what I, do. I was thinking back and I realized that when I first met you in that summer Beit Midrash, so it was at the end of a Shemitah year. Ah. And I'm pretty sure that you taught us Hilchot Shemitah in the summer program. And my, so that was probably 14 years ago. It was 14 that years ago. That was the ago. first of those, yeah. Correct. It was 14 years ago. And then seven years after that, my 10 days before the Shemitah year began, my second daughter was born. And she's actually called Shomriya Shvi'it. Oh, wow. Uh, we called her I sort of debated that whole year before. I knew I wanted the second name to have to do with Shemitah because obviously, correct, I, I agree with you. It's a tremendous schut um, and an opportunity. And... uh Anyways, I ended up going with Shvi'it, which is the name of the seventh year and the name of Shemitah and the Torah. So, uh, so I understand deeply that, that passion for, for this mitzvah. And I will also say that anyone who isn't familiar with Rav Rimon's books on Shemitah, they've also been translated. Yes. He has a very unique presentation of halacha, whereas he takes a very in-depth, what we call halacha bi'iyun, to sort of lay out all the different layers of development of halacha in a very visual way. It's a very unique way of teaching halacha that is wildly pedagogue. successful. Yeah, so he has like an unbelievable combination of pedagogy with tremendous uh, erudition in, in Torah scholarship. It's yeah, really quite, quite the thing. So anyone's not familiar with, we'll, put, we'll link those in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. I think Shemitah has, is a unique mitzvah in the sense that it combines within it a number of fundamental principles. Uh, first of all, there's two main aspects of Shemitah. There's what's called Shemitat Karka, the agricultural aspect. There's also something called Shemitat Ksafim, which for some reason gets less attention. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But if we look at the agricultural side of Shemitah, there's really two places in the Torah where this mitzvah appears. It's clearly the same mitzvah, and yet it is presented both with different language in different contexts and in ways that make it look very different. The first of those two places is, is interestingly enough, in Parshat Mishpatim. Parshat Mishpatim, which is about civil law, right? It's about court cases, about people suing each other for various things, for damages, for accidents, for theft, all sorts of things like that. Towards the end of that parasha, we have exhortations to the judges themselves to avoid bribery and to make sure that they, you know, do everything humanly possible to make sure that justice prevails in their courtrooms. And then, at the end, sort of out of nowhere, the Torah gives us tupsukim, where it suddenly talks about something that seems completely unrelated, right? It tells us that for six years we're allowed to work the land, plant in our fields, and harvest our crops. And then it says, v'hashvi'it, so there's your daughter's name there, right? <laughs> and in the seventh year, tishmitena unitashta. That's the word shmita, which mm-hmm. in Hebrew means release. Right, So we're told that for six years we're allowed to work the land, and then when the crops grow we're allowed to harvest our crops. But in the seventh year we are to abandon it, release it and abandon it. Tishmetena unitashta. So it sounds at least as if I have to completely walk away. And what's the purpose of that? It says very clearly, Ve'achlu evyonei amecha. I'm supposed to walk away so that the poor people can can take from the land instead. So here the Torah presents us, and particularly when I look in the context, right, of Parshat Mishpatim. Today there's a, a buzzword that a lot of people use called social justice. That's a term that I think uh, originated only in the past few decades. Um, and it's sometimes associated with certain, I don't know, liberal uh, philosophies. And sometimes people associate those types of philosophies and the ideas they represent with, with things that may not be, in their minds, connected with the Torah. 
But here we see that actually the idea of social justice is in the Torah itself. This is Parshat Mishpatim, right? And after being after the judges are being told to make sure that particularly the, the poor and the weak, the immigrants, that none of these people are sort of taken advantage of or that there's no perversion of justice against them. The Torah presents us in this context with, with an idea that we have to at least periodically make sure to provide for the poor, which, of course, we call tzedakah, which also has within it that, that context. So when I, look at, when I look at this mitzvah in this context here, it's very clear that we're talking about what we call a mitzvah ben adam lechavero. This is a, an interpersonal, a social law that's meant to address the economic uh, disparities or the income gaps in society. You know, what's interesting also is that in last week's episode, and I was speaking to, uh, to Michael Eisenberg, so he was really speaking about all this from an economic perspective. And one of the things he said, which I, I think I have to also look further into, but it really made me think very differently about a lot of these mitzvot. And he says that staka is not about just giving, giving help to the poor, giving them money and sending them off, but that the Torah looks really to help rehabilitate them. And so when you, we think about, oh, we're going to leave our land to be hefker. We're not going to be its owners anymore and anybody could use it. But he was suggesting specifically with, with, uh, with Leket and Pe'a and all those other, those other mitzvot having to do with our land that we're, we're looking to give them the opportunity to learn a profession. So it's not that you're just going to come and take. They're going to come and learn how to work the land. They're going to come and learn how to do their gleaning properly. And uh, I don't know, it's throwing me back there also with this mitzvah as well, where we're sort of speaking about that the land, it's not just that I'm going to be a free-for-all, but that I'm actually going to enable them to sort of be the farmers themselves if they so wish. I don't know if that fits yes, into the way that halacha functions. That, no, but. that for sure seems to be that way, the way it's presented. On the other hand, when you start getting into the details, you realize that if that's the purpose of this mitzvah, then there's certain things here that don't make any sense. For example, they're not allowed to work the land either. Right. Right? Um, and if the real purpose was to provide, or if the only purpose or the main purpose was to provide for the poor, so either perhaps they should be allowed to come in, as Michael's suggesting, and work the land, or maybe I should have to work the land and then, and then abandon it so they can harvest it. So there's something it. else here that so we're, still, something we're, still, not, we're right. still don't know. So in Shemot, it's, it's presented that way, though. It also seems like from Shemot, as if I am the landowner, it seems like I'm obligated to abandon my field completely. That's what it says. Tishmetena unitashta, release it and abandon it. It sounds like only the poor are allowed to come into the land. We'll see in a minute that that's not true either. But that's the way it's presented to us in Shemot. Okay, so in Shemot we have what appears to be a social law that's meant to address economic disparities, even though it seems to have some unusual ways of doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when we come to our Parsha, Parsha Bahar, we have something, again, it's clearly the same mitzvah, it tells us that for six years we can work the land and the seventh year we cannot. But it's presented to us completely differently. First of all, the word Shemitah doesn't appear here. It's not called Shemitah. It's called Shabbat Haaretz. Mm-hmm. The Shabbat Haaretz, Shabbat Lashem. Mm-hmm. And it says explicitly it's for God. In Vayikra, what we have here is not a social law, or the way it's presented. We have a, a religious law, right? The Shabbat Haaretz, Shabbat Lashem. We're then told in slightly greater detail the same thing we were told in Shemot, which is that we're not allowed to work the land, we're not allowed to plant in the fields, we're not allowed to prune the vineyards, and when the time to harvest comes, we're not allowed to harvest. That also um, might make us think that we have to abandon the land completely, just like on Shabbat. If it's like Shabbat, we're not allowed to do any sort of melacha on Shabbat. So maybe you would think that the uh, person reading it might think that 
the Torah is prohibiting us from, from harvesting, from picking, from doing anything. But that's not true either because the Torah then says to us, You can eat from the land. But it's not only you. It's you. It's for you. It's for your servants. It's for uh, your employees. So whereas in Shemot, it sounds like I have to abandon it for the poor. Here I'm told that I'm also allowed to, I'm also allowed to eat from the land. And this seems to be part of some kind of a religious concept. So it's very unusual that the same mitzvah is presented to us in what appear to be almost contradictory or conflicting ways. What's even more fascinating, though, is that the same exact dichotomy that appears when it comes to Shabbat Haaretz also appears when it comes to what we call Shabbat Bereshit, the main Shabbat, so to speak, the Shabbat that we observe every week. And not everybody pays attention to this, but there also we have the same mitzvah presented in two completely different ways. If you uh, stop a Jew on the street anywhere in the world, uh, an observant Jew, and say, excuse me, sir, or ma'am, why is it that, uh, that you Jews, uh, every, uh, you know, I notice that on every uh, Saturday nobody's driving their cars and, you know, and you're all refraining from work, what's that all about? So I think that uh, most people would... Instinctively answer, well, you know... God stopped working on the seventh yeah, day. he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, we're commanded to do the same. And they wouldn't be wrong. That's exactly what it says in the uh, what's called the Ten Commandments, in the Aseret Debrod, right? Ki sheishet yamim, asa Hashem, et hashamayim vet ha'aretz, et hayam vet kol shabam, vayanach bayom ha'shvi, alkein berach Hashem et yom ha'shabat vayikat sheyu. Right? God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, and he commanded us to do the same. That is what it says in the Aseret Debrod, in the book of Shemot. But when the Aseret Debrot are repeated in the book of Dvarim, it tells us a completely different reason. It doesn't say a word about God creating the world. Rather, it says, you have to refrain from work on Shabbat. Why? So that your slave and your servant can rest just like you rest. It's a social law. And then the Torah continues, Remember that you were once a slave, and you were taken out of Egypt by God. So just as you were a slave, and, and now if you're a master and you have a slave working for you, you have to give that slave a day of rest, because God commanded you to. Just like you. The same exact uh, duality that we see in Shabbat Haaretz, in Shemitah, we see also in Shabbat Bereshit. And... Um, that makes us ask why this is so. I think we can all understand sort of um, intuitively that both of these aspects, between man and man and between man and God, these are both important aspects of the Torah, and you can't have one without the other. But what does it mean that the same mitzvah is being uh, presented to us in two completely different ways? As if I would also say that that response of, of course, are two aspects of the Torah, and they go hand in hand, is our internal harmonization of these dichotomous sources, meaning when in an, from academic eyes, these are classic cases where they look at two different books of the Torah and say they have two different, two different ambitions, right? They're looking to teach different things. And we, with our orientation of Chazal and all of our Parshanut, look at it and say, they fit like a glove, meaning you have to have both. Just as way, by way of one example, the Ramban says, uh, when it comes to our example, 
He says, why is it that on Shabbat we have to let all of those in our household rest? It's because they too need to be witnesses to the act of creation. And so it takes both of these ideas and it harmonizes them together, meaning they're not two contradictory aspects to the mitzvah, but they're supposed to come together. The whole point is to be witnesses to God's creation of the world. And so we need to let everybody rest so that we can then all do that together. Now, we're going to, I think, tease it out and look at the two aspects as more disparate because when we look at them separately, we get two different aspects of the mitzvah together. The Ramban here, just as by way of one example, fuses these two together, which is how many midrashim also will look at these two sources and and put them together. Right, but I think that if the Torah is presenting the exact same mitzvah in two different ways, there's a message there. And I, I don't think it's I something agree. that we're superimposing on the Torah. I agree. I I this is coming directly from the text. I, I agree with you. I'll, I'll also add one other idea, which is a really, really seminal article by uh, by Josh Berman, and he, he writes a variation of it in his book, Ani, eh, Ani Ma'amin, mm-hmm. um, where he speaks about the way the way law unfolds. And we look at law as, well, if it was written one way, that it has to appear exactly the same in another place. And that's because that's the way law has developed in, in our world today. But there's another version of law, which is that law is something that unfolds over time, and that what was important to emphasize at one point, while well, in a different space of time or in a different setting, there needs another aspect needs to be highlighted. Um, it's a critical point when it comes to really specific details of laws that are different in Sefer Shemot versus Zvarim. But I think also in our case here, meaning we have two places, I agree with you, ultimately we're going to come to the conclusion that they both offer a dimension that we can't live without for this mitzvah. But it also is a dimension that maybe was necessary to be emphasized in a different setting I don't know if we'll get to that today, but maybe there is a reason why the aspect of Ben Adam Chavero between man and man was was more necessary in one book than the other. Perhaps in the you know theophany of Aser Hadibrot, we're in a God-focused scenario, whereas in Dvarim, we're in a scenario where we are about to enter Eretz Yisrael, and so we have to emphasize the Ben Adam Chavero aspect. When it comes to Shemitah, it's the opposite. It's the, opposite. Shmot, the same book of Shmot, yeah. uh, you know, emphasizes the. So to speak social. Although aspect. there, it's in a it's in a section of of halachot that are socially exactly. oriented and brings in a mitzvah that one would think doesn't belong there. Right. Right. So I I think, but the, we can even take this a step deeper, though. In other words, uh, it didn't have to be the same mitzvah. It could have been a mitzvah to do one thing and a mitzvah to do another thing. There could have been certain mitzvot, perhaps that um maybe would 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 take two different you know aspects to them but i think both shabbat and even more so shemitah i think most people aren't aren't used to thinking of these things in in terms of ben adam lechavero and if the torah is giving us a single mitzvah or in this case two separate mitzvah but each one of them a single mitzvah that uh that has both of these aspects built into it i think what the torah is telling us is that the dichotomy that we see may be actually a false dichotomy Mm-hmm. And that it's not that we can't have one without the other. It's that the two are really one and the same. And many years ago, I started thinking about what, it, what does that mean exactly? And what got me is this, this pasuk here uh, that we just read about Shabbat in Dvarim. Leman yanuach avdecha v'amatcha kamocha. I started imagining, when I, when I talk about this, I like to fantasize, right? Uh, let's say I'm this wealthy business owner, right? I have lots and lots of uh, money and I have lots and lots of uh, property, and I have lots and lots of employees, people who work for me. And I understand that the Torah tells me I have to, I have to treat my employees well, and I, I have to pay them on time, and I have to pay them properly. And let's say I do that. 
and I even pay them well, and I, I, I follow all the laws that the Torah commands me. But, but my starting point might have been, I want my employees to work seven days a week. What's, what's this idea that everyone has a right to a day off? Where does that come from? I got where I am. I'm fantasizing here, right? I got where I am by a lot of hard work and, you know, I climbed the ladder and I put in decades of sweat and tears until I built this, this business empire that I have. I'm happy to pay my employees and I'll pay them well. I expect that to work just as hard as I did. Where does this, where does this come from, this idea that every person has a right to a day off? Why is that something that should be taken uh, for granted? But if I start with the theological aspect, right? If I start with the fact that God created the entire world and God rules everything in the world and that nothing in this world belongs to us, everything belongs to God, and all of us were created by God. So the fact that I was successful and someone else wasn't, it's not because I have any great talents. And even if it is, where did those talents come from? I didn't create those talents. That's also a gift from God. Um, And whatever successes I've had, is a gift from God. And the same way he gave it to me, he could easily take it away. V'zacharta, remember, you were once a slave. It wasn't always like this. And if yesterday you didn't have what you have today, you may not have it tomorrow either. So if, if you have it, it's because I, God, have given it to you. And I'm commanding you to share it with someone else. And I'm commanding you to recognize that he is no different than you are. Once I accept the, the, the religious idea that there's a bore olam, that there's a creator, then I can understand that all people are genuinely equal. And then I have to say, okay, so he has to be treated the same as I am. Now, if I accept that, if I internalize that idea, I say, okay, I got it. I'm going to do that now. I'm going to give all my employees a day off. And you know what? I'm even going to invite them, not just to have the day off, I'm going to invite them to have Sudot Shabbat with me. I'm going to invite all my employees to sit with me at my table on Shabbat. I really got the idea. For six days, they work and I sit in my office, and on the seventh day, we all sit around the table together. But we're still not really equals, because after all, they're there as my guests. I'm still the master, and they're still the employee. Every seven years, the Torah takes this to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And the Torah role says... Role-playing. Go with role-playing. What do you mean by role-playing? I mean that I no longer will even be the master. Meaning yeah, David, I'm, it's not role-playing, it's the, it's, it's being the truth. Being stripped of your roles. I'll show you in a second how I see it's the truth. Walk away, it's not your land anymore. And this helps us resolve a contradiction. Because in Shemot, the Torah told us, walk away. In Shemot, it sounds like I, the landowner, am not allowed to go anywhere near my field. Only the poor people are allowed to... So to it retains it. that hierarchy. Or it's reversed. It sounds like in Shemot that I'm not allowed to go into the land, and only the poor people are. Mm, okay. But in Vayikra, it tells me, I'm allowed to eat it too. Mm. How do I resolve that contradiction? It's very simple. Once I understand that the land never belonged to me at all, for six years Hashem gave it to me and allowed me to act as if I'm the owner. Even then, as you mentioned, as we read last week, I have to give leket and shikha and peah, right? I have to provide for the poor. But... After taking care of those obligations, everything else is mine. In the, sixth, in the seventh year, Hashem says, now I'm taking it back for the year. You walk away. It's for the poor people. But once I walk away, what do I have? Now I'm poor too. Mm-hmm. And then the Torah says, fine, so then you can come back also. And that, in fact, is the halakha. I'm allowed to take from my own field, but no more or less than anyone else's. So, whereas... 
On Shabbat, I invited them to my table. In Shemitah, we're all equal. They come in, they don't ask, they don't receive, they take. It's theirs as much as it's mine, because it's really none of ours and it's really all of ours. There's a third level of this also. See, if, if every Shabbat I sort of take the uh, master-slave or employer-employee relationship and put it on temporary hold, right? They don't have to work either, and they can join me at my table, let's say. And on the seventh year in Shemitah, this gets ratcheted up a notch, and everybody's equal for one year. Still, everybody knows that at the end of the Shemitah year, things are going to go back to the way they were. But every 50 years, after seven Shemitah cycles, there's an even more far-reaching concept called Yovel, right? What happens in Yovel? The idea of Yovel is that every family has inherited a nachala, a piece of land, which in theory means that every family uh, is equal, right? They have the ability to produce for themselves. At least in theory, there's, uh, the game starts, so to speak, with everybody being economically equal. Now, over time... Uh, there are people that are more successful. There are people that are less successful. People start building up debts, and they may need to sell off their land. And that's what winds up happening. You get, you get people that amass more and more property, and the rest of the people are reduced to being poor laborers. Right? Now, this is a, not a new concept. Karl Marx was bothered by this problem already uh, back in the 19th century. And he came up with what he thought was a solution. Socialism, communism. History showed that it didn't work. But the fact that Marx didn't have the right solution doesn't mean he was wrong about the problem. And look what the Torah did. The Torah created a situation where every 50 years, 50 years is a long time, about a generation and a half, an average person will experience Yovel once in their lifetime, or perhaps twice. If you get it as a young person, you know, you'll experience it again perhaps in old age. But essentially, every generation and a half, there's a huge reset of the whole economy. Everything goes back to the way it was. And if someone becomes impoverished and has to sell off his land, he knows that one day he'll get it back. And if he doesn't live to see that day, then his son will get it back. Right? But you can't get this uh, situation developing where there's this landed aristocracy where a few people manage to slowly amass all of the resources and essentially turn everyone else into their serfs. Right? And what's that based on? It ends with the pasuk, kili ha'aretz. It's all based on the same concept. There's a master of the universe and we're all equal. So it is a capitalist economy that the Torah gave us. And as apparently Michael said in last week's podcast, which I didn't have a chance to hear, even within a capitalist system, right, we look out for the poor and we do it in a way that tries to bring them into the capitalist system and to make them part of a productive economy. But there's this multi-tiered system that has these, you might want to call it socialist corrections built into the system. And it's meant to work only because kili ha'aretz. Right, meaning it's not socialism because it's based only on the human factor. It's, it's, there's an equalizer here, and that's God. Meaning there's obviously been so much written about this from a sociological and theological and economic perspective, but there are very few things that can cause a society to, to change, right? One of them, which is what makes religion so powerful, is the theological aspect. If we would just say, let's all be nice people— and every 50 years let our land go, it's not a very convincing argument. I mean, it would be very, I'd be very doubtful if anybody would actually listen. But by putting God behind it and God saying, this is my land, that already makes it a much more convincing 
prospect, which kind of leads us into the question of what practically happens with all this. But I mean, we'll get there in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. But let me just point out, I, I think what you just said is something that's more revolutionary than people realize. I think it's, to most of us nowadays, I think it's pretty clear that you cannot be what we call a religious person without being an ethical person, right? Uh, every so often you find someone who have unfortunately committed various crimes and someone who, you know, appears very pious uh, in terms of mitzvot ben adam makom. It turns out was cheating or stealing or taking bribes or whatever it is. And it's clear, I think, that that person who's ethically, who's violating ethics is not really a religious person. But I think the message here is that the opposite is also true. The only way to really become an ethical person is to start with by being a religious person. In other words, the only way to really genuinely see all human beings as equal is to recognize that there's one God. That obviously goes hard fast against the modern society we live in, which is which their basic assumption is, is the opposite, that you right. certainly can be without God. I will say that uh, America was founded on the exact principle we're speaking about. I Meaning, when we speak about America being founded on... One nation on, under God, indivisible. And America being founded on the values of the Hebrew Bible, which you can listen to, you know, Rev. Dr. Mayor Soloveitchik on this or many sure. others. Um, but the idea being is that they also knew that while they wanted to create a capitalist society where the economics would, would utterly flourish, they knew that nothing could anchor society like belief in God. And therefore, it was very important to them to make it one nation under God because they knew that human nature could not be trusted on this topic. So yeah, I think that's very powerful. sort of an offshoot of what we're saying, but it's yeah. based on the exact idea. So where do we go with this in terms of the practical ramifications? I mean, already we know that in the time of the Mishnah and earlier, this was these were very difficult principles to put into practice. For sure. Um, and as I said, the Jewish people never fully, or the people of Israel, never fully lived up to this mitzvah. Just look at the last psukim in the Tanakh that tell us that the 70 years of exile after the first destruction of the first temple were in payment for 70 shmitot that were not observed properly. Um, and yes, as you and mentioned... And the Torah itself, how many places, I don't know, in two or three places in the Torah, does God already preempt the question of the people? They say, well, what will we eat, right? right? <laughs> we, exactly. Meaning God already acknowledges in the Torah that this is one of the hardest ones out there, right? Yeah, and already, there are very few examples of that, where the Torah actually addresses that idea. There are places where the rabbis talk about it, or, or later sources... I can't think of another example in the Torah. Sure I think I there's one, though. Either. But this is the one I'm thinking of, yeah. right? What are we going to eat? How are we going to do this, right? right? God says, I know this is really It actually happens twice rough. in the Torah... Because it's all said something very similar when it comes to the the other aspect of Shemitah, which I think we should say a word about, which is Shemitah Ksafim. Yeah. Right? In the book of Dvarim, in Parshat Re'eh, we have again, Miket Sheva Shanim Taseh Shemitah. At the end of seven years, you should do Shemitah. And one might think that we're going to get a repetition of this mitzvah. But it turns out that the Shemitah, back to that word of release, here is talking about something completely different. It's talking about releasing debts. If someone owes money, at the end of the Shemitah year, then uh, those debts are canceled, or at least we're not supposed to collect them. That's a fascinating uh, halachic nuance that needs to be uh, investigated separately. But he, there also, the Torah says, he shamer lecha pen right? which is a very strong word, right? Be very, very careful lest you have this uh, evil, wanton. wanton, yeah, this unrestrained, and this is the type of the language that's used, for example, in the story of Pilegesh Begiva, this horrific yeah. story of the you know gang rape and murder of this young woman. And the Torah uses that language here about what? About a person who might think twice before offering a loan, knowing that that loan might not be something that he'd be able to collect afterwards. Don't you dare, says the Torah, mm-hmm. do that. And the message both of the psukim that you were talking about in our parsha, right? If you ask, what am I going to eat? The Torah's answer is, it's illogical. 
I know it's illogical, God says, and ordinarily we're not supposed to rely on miracles. But there God says, trust me. I'll provide. I'll provide. And it's the exact opposite of what you think. You think that if you work the land, you're going you're gonna to have what to eat. And if you don't work, you're not going to have what to eat. And that is ordinarily the case. But here it works backwards, God says, perhaps to show us that it's not really our efforts in the end that really determine success or failure. Our efforts are important, but they need divine blessing. And when it comes to Shemitah Safin, the Torah says the same thing. Because you think that if you give the loan and then you're not going to be able to collect the loan, you're going to lose the money. It's actually the exact opposite. If you give the loan and you don't collect it, you'll get it back another way. These examples that kind of remind me of like mental boot camp. It's these places in the Torah where the Torah is trying to is really trying to tell us you need to go against human nature, meaning human nature feels, thinks, and experiences one thing, but I'm telling you that that's not really the way it looks. And it's these places where it's it, they're very, very difficult because it's going against the basic human nature, and God is saying, your mindset, your natural mindset, it's wrong. You need to have a different one. If I could you know, put it in, say, modern parlance that we use today, it's very, very difficult um, because these are not things that you see immediate returns on. These are things that lead maybe ultimately to a life, a, a lifelong pursuit of Torah and Tzedek and Kirvah Hashem and closeness to God. But these are not things that in that year after, right, you may, you may be hungry in that year. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Meaning it's, it's, not, it's not going to work out so simply. And we have there. historical evidence that at least in the second temple period, there they were, were times that, yeah. They were hungry. Yeah. But look what you just pointed out also. You just brought in a third aspect. Because we talked about Ben Adam Lamakom. Ben Adam Lachavero, and you just pointed out that Shemitah also has in it what we call Ben Adam Latzmo. It's a tool for, for self-development mm-hmm. and for a person strengthening uh, his or her own inner fortitude and ability to delay the, you know, to, to live with uncertainty or to delay the uh, satisfaction, gratification of desires. So it's all wrapped up into one. It really, it really deserves the, the introduction Bahar Sinai because really everything in the Torah is wrapped up in this one mitzvah. So the adaptation of these halachot into the modern world is something that if anyone knows about Shemitah, they know more about those aspects of Heter Mechirav, sort of a very similar notion of selling chametz. You know, all these sell strange the things on Kashrut signs. Right. Oats are baked in, matzah menutak. All, all these things, nohri. which I'm sure they can read your guide, I yes. imagine, that exists online <laughs> to figure out what all of that means and how to sort of navigate the land of Israel during this year. Um, but I guess I sort of wanted to ask you, putting that topic aside uh, for today, what what aspects of Shemitah do you think we can integrate in a way that's different for for our life today? Understanding the challenges it presents, whether theologically or just human wise, and all all the challenges that these mitzvot present us with, what what could we do with that? Well, I, I think a lot of the modern both challenges and solutions to those challenges when that that are that are discussed start from the fact that. The world we live in today is radically different on this level than the world in which the Torah was given. And in an agricultural society, if you, if you keep Shemitah Karka, if no one works the land, then the economy comes to an almost complete standstill. And that's what the Torah really wanted. Today, in Israel, around 1% of the population works the land. And that 1% provides enough food for all of us, plus a huge export economy, which means that even after we figure out, you know, what halachic device we're going to use to put food on our tables during Shemitah, we're dealing with something that most of us don't deal with directly on a day-to-day level. And it's precisely for that reason that there's a mitzvah of Shemitah Ksafim, right? Because we deal, our economy is based on money. Now, just like when it came to working the land, there's all these workarounds that were developed mostly at the late 19th and early 20th centuries of Hatemichir and Otzer Beitin, there was a workaround for Shemitat Ksafim as well called Pruzbul, which we also don't have time to get into now. 
But perhaps what we need to think about is how to implement these theological slash socioeconomic ideas into our modern communities and into our nation and into our lives. And maybe Shemitat Safim is a place to look to look at for that. We have a deeper relationship with our money than we do with the land at this point, is, is what you're suggesting. Essentially. Yeah. Whether that's good or bad, but that's the reality. No, I think it's just the reality of, yeah. how, of how our economy works today. Um, so even if we're going to fill out the Prusbul, which will enable us to continue uh, you know, paying our mortgage and, and collecting on our uh, investments in Israeli banks if we have or, or things like that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should ignore this mitzvah and that this is a time, this year particularly, to look out for those people that are that are disadvantaged, perhaps to give staka, to organize ways of debt, perhaps of debt relief uh, or other ways to help people get a new start in life, which is exactly what the non-agricultural aspect of Shemitah is trying to do. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I'm thinking about it in my life. So this year, we have thought about, right, where we're buying our vegetables, where we're buying our fruit. We're aware, looking at labels. But you're right that in all of our financial discussions of the past couple of months, my husband and I have never once spoken about the fact that this is the Shemitah year regarding our Kesef. And I think that that's a really good point. I think there are a number of efforts that have come up in modern Israel today that I think that are worth for all of us. I mean, I'd like to think that if I'm if I'm not so familiar with them, then then most of us aren't. Right. Um, so I think you're sort of asking for us to ra- raise our awareness regarding how we deal with our money in this year, and if that's what we're coming in contact with the most, then then we should have a relationship with with shmita vis a vis our money. And I'll also add that shmitat safim halachically applies all over the world. It's not limited to Eretz Yisrael. Oh, wow. And therefore, for our listeners abroad, this is the one aspect of Shemitah that, uh, that they have a direct connection with wherever they live right now. I'm going to look into some of those resources and put them also in the show notes. Excellent. My behavior, thanks for being here today. Thank you. This was fun. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.